Welcome to the Adaptive Collaborative Podcast, connecting the adaptive communities. Hosted by James Norris, founder of Handy Capable Fitness, and Melissa DeCellis, founder of Adaptively Abled Amputees and Adaptively Abled Fitness. Tonight, yep. we're excited to welcome Dr. Jonathan Reisman to the Adaptive Collaborative Podcast. He's a doctor of osteopathic medicine and a physical medicine and rehabilitation third year resident at the University of Minnesota. John, would you mind telling those who may not know what a physiatrist is and what a doctor of osteopathic medicine is a sure. little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, th thank you for having me. Uh, it's always great to uh, participate and, and listen to what some of your guests have to say. So I'm proud to be able to contribute and uh, hope what I have to say is, uh, is worthy of your platform. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll start with uh, osteopathic uh, physician. Um, so there's the history behind what that used to be and what it kind of is nowadays. Historically, it represented sort of a different approach to, to medicine and, and treating, uh, you know, illness. Um, uh, in the last 20, 30 years, it's basically uh, come to really embrace everything in Western medicine, offer exactly what uh, typical MD medical education uh, has to offer, but then it still holds on to some of what its roots were. And those were um, focusing on the mind, uh, body, and spirit, uh, all of those components when it comes to treating, uh, which I think is really important, obviously, because we, we, we are all multifaceted and we can't just treat one aspect of a person. Uh, we have to view the entire holistic picture, which is something that I think it nicely, uh, the rest of our, I think our country is kind of ready and looking for that type of approach to things. Um, and then a physiatrist is really kind of similar in that regard. Um, there was actually a statistic that came out from the most recent residency match that uh, most, uh, the, I think the field of physiatry has proportionately the most osteopathic residents in it out of any uh, residency field. Um, so physiatry, also known as physical medicine and rehabilitation, focuses on a lot of things, but if you could summarize it in one word, it's function. Uh, and, and function means something else to everybody. It's very easy to understand the heart and, and making sure somebody's heart is beating properly. But function, um, you, need, you need to be able to function in everything that you do. And so if somebody has an injury, uh, an illness, um, if somebody really has any aspect of their life that is required for their activities of daily living, that uh, what we refer to, a physiatrist is the doctor who combines medical knowledge and training with uh, all different approaches to function, working on a team with uh, different types of therapists, researchers, social workers, um, embracing technological changes, really just to make sure that their patients can function in everyday life. Did we lose Melissa? Uh, nope, 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 I'm still here. <laughs> okay. Oh, I think I froze. You did freeze for a second, so. Yes, I, th I think I froze. Well, thanks, Sean, for that for that intro. That that was a lot 
That was a lot of information. Now, during one of our, you know, previous conversations, you had mentioned that you had had a pretty rigorous uh, study schedule growing up. Now, was that was that um, instilled in you by your family, or was that self motivated? Um, yeah, that was uh, definite. I think maybe a little bit of both. It certainly didn't start off as self motivation. It certainly started off from uh, family um, and and teachers and community. Um, I was always shown uh, a path that really promoted um, and expected you to excel in anything that you do. And um, that was true of everyone in our class. Uh, you know, we weren't, uh, it wasn't that, you know, the highest performing kids were expected to go do something great and everybody else could just go do whatever. Like everybody was expected to achieve. It didn't matter what level you were on. Um, the expectation was that you would, you would meet the milestones that you needed to meet. Um, definitely uh, acknowledging that not everyone has necessarily the same starting point and the same the same skill sets and um, the cert the same outcome might not be realistic for everybody to achieve, but everyone is expected to try to achieve their best, and that's all you can expect from somebody is that they try to achieve their best. So uh, definitely, in terms of uh, rigorous work and and commitment to working hard. Uh, that was something that I didn't necessarily understand so much more as a child. But then as you get a little bit older, you start to think about what the outcomes are of your hard work. And it becomes pretty clear that uh, in this world, people who work really hard uh, can really achieve pretty much anything. 100%. Completely agree. So during one of our conversations, you had mentioned that your wife also works in the rehabilitation field as a speech and language pathologist. For those who may not know what a speech and language pathologist is, do you mind explaining what her role in the rehab process is? And also, we'll discuss a little later some of your own passion projects. Do you ever collaborate with your wife on those? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And we do. Uh, we do and we don't, actually. Um, so that's actually a good reminder, just bringing up schools. Just one thing that since I am still affiliated with the school, I was told that anything I do on, uh, you know, on social media or wherever, I always have to acknowledge that it's uh, I'm not representing them. So while I have a wonderful residency program in the University of Minnesota, anything that I say or, or right now is me as acting as Jonathan Reisman. Um, and then further, you know, while I'm, while I am a doctor, uh, anything I say right now is that, you know, just educational and that's true of anything I do online, uh, not medical advice. Um, the reason I mention all that is as you know, you, you made me think about it is because yes, we were both in school at the same time and um, we both finished college around the same time. We both started graduate school around the same time. And definitely going through that process, uh, at various intervals, it became obvious that each of our education was deficient in the area that the, other, that the others might know something about. So for instance, in medical school, in the questions on aphasia and dysarthria and different types of aspects of, and, and nuances there, a graduating physician does not really understand anything of what that means, to be, to be honest. Uh, it's not part uh, intensely of the medical curriculum. You might learn about it further in residency and fellowship if that's meaningful for you. So, for instance, in, 
in that area, if my wife uh, was there or, you know, I would make a note that I need to ask her, what does this really mean? You know, I know the text, I know what they're telling me I need to know, but explain what that really is to me. And the concept, you know, myself personally, I had wrongfully, I shouldn't say wrongfully assumed, but all I knew about speech and language pathology was uh, children uh, that have stutters and lisps needing that to get worked on in school, which is not uh, obviously what it is. And that, that I think maybe was a little formative in terms of guiding sort of what my interests would be as a physician in that um, it was obvious to me that we're not all learning as much as we need to be learning. Uh, so my wife was able to teach me, you know, more about that. Obviously, it gets much more complicated, swallow swallow, and other functions that are important. And then uh, conversely, um, you know, my wife had to learn neuroscience and all of these different things that, you know, a one semester course doesn't really do justice, justice to. So as somebody who had to spend a lot of time in medical school learning that, and then certainly in the field of physical medicine rehabilitation, I was kind of able to help her with that. Um, as far as projects go, um, we don't for, we did in school have some research projects that we would work on together. If it, you know, if it was my wife's assignment, you know, we would kind of think about it and talk about it together. Now I would just say informally, probably similar to anyone who's either married or has a roommate or, you know, a good friend, there's really nothing that either one of us, uh, does that we don't run by the other one certainly when it comes to something professional so um if you know for me if it, whether it's uh what i'm going to do at something for my residency program or um how i should say this or that in a video you know that i'm going to post online um my wife definitely gives input um one good example of that is just with coronavirus and doctors and healthcare providers wearing masks and how challenging it is to be under to, for patients for patients to understand us and everything. So, uh, as a speech language pathologist, she had a lot to help me in terms of helping me better communicate while I'm wearing a mask and you know using more emotion and using my hands when I speak and just really understanding that you might need to do something different for each patient. Yeah, you brought up a great point, and I'm actually going to insert a question here. Please. It's very difficult to communicate not seeing our entire facial expression. So what advice did your wife give to you when communicating with colleagues and especially with patients? Um, So one was, it kind of sounds obvious, but a lot of times in life and in healthcare and in everything that we do, the obvious thing is often overlooked. Just speak louder. And and that's something that uh, you don't think about when you walk into the room in medical school. You, you're taught about all these different things that you need to do. And you just don't, you're speaking of, if, if you, I'm a third year resident now, if I've been, and in the last two years of medical school or clinical, so if I've been spending the last five years going into patients' rooms, um, then I have the certain volume that I speak at. And it's not easy to remember every time going into the room that I need to speak a little bit louder. Uh, using my hands, um, trying to use a little bit more emotion when I speak, writing things down on paper, um, just, and then honestly, just realizing that if your patient or somebody is not understanding you, you kind of have to pivot and try to figure out something else. 
That's ve- that's very interesting, and I think you know we can all use a lot of those tip- tips too. Because I know when I'm at a restaurant, because I've gone out to eat a couple times, it's really really difficult to understand the person, and you're only hearing about like thirty percent of what they're saying. But this kind of leads me into the next question: When you were going through medical school and you were really honing in what you wanted to specialize in what made you want to work with the adaptive and handicapped communities so i uh i realized that when when i walk it's kind of abstract uh uh, you know, when I walk down the street and you're, it's, you're going to have to stay with me here on this point because uh, you're going to be like, what is he saying? But it'll, it'll make sense. <laughs> when, if you saw me, it's um, the best way to say it. Any, any sport, whatever sport you like, it doesn't matter if it's basketball, football, soccer, you might not care at all about rugby, let's say. You maybe never watched rugby at all, but if so, if you were walking and you saw that somebody was watching rugby and they told you this is overtime of the game seven in rugby of the entire world, there's a minute left and it's a tie game. Even if you don't like rugby, you're going to be super interested in that moment and seeing what's going to happen. And uh, as far as working with the adaptive community, every moment of daily life is that final minute of game seven in terms of importance to the person and uh things that we take for granted in life such as um just walking to go take out the garbage or going up a flight of stairs to uh, a few stairs to get on a bus um those those moments are important, like that, that gravity. And so for me, when I see somebody that needs to, to function on that level, it's, it's instantly you become, you start rooting for the person to, to, you know, to achieve what they need to achieve. And that can mean something totally different to each person. But I think that's really just what it is. It takes, it takes our lives and it takes the most basic important parts of our lives and it shows you how how important each one of those moments are. So in working, you know, with this community, um, it really gives every second of my day meaning because every every aspect of what we're doing is of the utmost importance. You know, I've never actually heard that analogy, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, it, it's I have a. Uh, I have another, um, well, thank you. I I have another aspect of that. um, And what that is, is that if I was, uh, I didn't want to say this first because I didn't want it to sound wrong, but just since you like that analogy, just one more that I think is is really good. If you saw me uh, or anybody that wanted to throw something across the room into a garbage can, you could be in the most important conversation of your life, but when you are walking, there's something that happens that instantly becomes intriguing where like you have to know if it goes in or not. Like if you saw somebody throw something across the room to get into a a garbage can, like you don't know the person, it doesn't matter. It's It's the lowest stakes thing of your day, probably whether or not it goes in, but there's just a human interest factor that is so intense in that moment 
So I guess it's kind of that same line, but that's just another way that I think about it is that you instantly, like if you saw somebody walking down the street on crutches um, and you saw that they might trip if, you know, when a curb is coming up or, or someone's in a wheelchair and they need to get over, you know, a certain or around a certain obstacle, you have no idea who the person is, but like you just have to look and see what's going to happen. But it's so much more meaningful than whether or not a shot goes in. It's like, is this human being going to be okay? So that's, that's sort of that answer. Okay. Those are, some, those are some great analogies. The sports fan in me got fired up there. Oh, great, great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're a third year resident. You're kind of finishing up your residency fairly soon and you're looking to specialize. What aspect of physical medicine and rehab do you want to continue to root for people? Well, there you go. That's a good way, uh, good way to put it. Um, so I kind of have two focuses there and they're, they're, they're uh, kind of opposites, but they're also the same, I think. Um, and I'm planning on, or at least I should say, I'm pursuing a fellowship in interventional pain management. Um, and just briefly, what that means is there's uh, all different types of pain in this world and people have so different sources of the pain, whether or not they uh, have had an injury in the past or they just have arthritis. Um, and we're learning kind of like what I said earlier on that uh, surgery is not the answer to everything and you, you can't make every problem go away. So it becomes how do you deal with the problem and move past the problem. And uh, that's an area that's very tangible. It involves, uh, you know, nerve blocks and functional uh, interventions. Um, and then the exact opposite end of the spectrum and interest of mine is kind of like what we're talking about right now is uh, advocacy and education and, um, you know, cheerleading, if you will, from a medical perspective. And that's more the rehab realm. And uh, I think that both are important to everybody and they kind of, um, one uses my mind and my mouth and one uses my fingers. And, and it allows me to kind of bring my entire person into what I'm doing and, and uh, help anybody no matter what, where they fall in on the spectrum uh, and really join the two. Um, I really believe that uh, people who have had these uh, different injuries or whether they're uh, acquired uh, congenit or congenital, um, the, in order to be successful, you have to uh, accomplish certain things that... Uh, are the equivalent of training for a marathon and winning that marathon. And I think that if uh, we can teach everybody in the world, whether or not they've had one of these types of injuries to learn from somebody who's gone through something like that, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, I guess, my passion in what I'm doing. So kind of mixing all of that together, I guess. Now I, I want to bring it back to the sports a little bit. And the other day, you sent us a message saying that you're attending a lecture on adaptive sports. What, what were some of the takeaways of that? And how, how do sports help in the healing process of somebody that has suffered an injury or is just finding sports for the first time? How have you seen that affect them in a positive way? Yeah, so uh, last week um, on Wednesday, we had a conference in our residency program 
uh, and we were supposed to host a national conference on adaptive sports. Unfortunately, that part got um, postponed uh, because of coronavirus, but we had uh, this really big lecture uh, for a few hours on different topics. And one thing that came up was um, that we were learning about was the research guidelines are completely absent. Um, no, I shouldn't say completely absent. People are working really hard, so that's not a fair thing to say, but they're, they're certainly not where they ought to be and where they can be. So for, for instance, in um, professional sports or high school sports, we're aware now of the impact of concussions on the, the athlete and how serious we have to take concussions. Part of our concussion protocol that we learn about involves having the person stand up and do a series of things while they're standing. A lot of patients, or I should say people, who are competing in, a, in adaptive sports cannot stand. So if you take a doctor who went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and is of the few doctors who can properly actually assess for concussion because it is already a subspecialty if, you, if you've done a sports medicine fellowship after rehab, um, and the protocols that they learned cannot be applied to this athlete who is maybe uh, with a prosthesis or in a wheelchair. So we really have to reapproach our guidelines and figure out how to, um, how to think through some of these things. And, um, but the other thing that really came out of it too is um, sports is what something in life that's uh, unlike most things, it's been a part of our culture for thousands of years. There's really been sports for however far back you think. And um, it's super important area. It, we think of sports as kind of just uh, a luxury, I think. But in reality, it's way more than that. Uh, even just right now in the United States, um, with uh, the efforts that's going on in terms of trying to allow the NBA to get start up again or, or baseball or, uh, you know, my attending physicians, kids, you know, sports league, or just all these different things, they really play an important role to us. They account, and, and it's not the same role for each person, just like anything. So uh, certainly as the competing athlete in adaptive sports, forget about, I was talking about more of, as a spectator, but for competing, to be able to compete in sports uh, and to be given that opportunity allows, allows the athlete to get all of those valuable life um, lessons. And it's more than just lessons. It's, you know, I, I, I'm preaching to the choir here with the value of sport, but, you know, it allows, it allows you to, to do all of that. And I think um, in another way, it, it's super important in adaptive sports because kind of like uh, what I said about the, the, uh, earlier about how noticeable it is if somebody is potentially going to fall or not when they're walking in the street. Uh, unfortunately, in the adaptive community, uh, I think we're aware that we sometimes have to do a lot more advocacy uh, to get recognition than we otherwise maybe should have to do. And I think uh, adaptive sports is a very, very noticeable thing. And I think that if, if, you know, if ESPN was to have uh, a wheelchair basketball game on tonight at eight o'clock, I think it would do much more than just show people a really cool version of basketball, but it would get people thinking about a lot of other important things. So kind of on that same thread, John, what 
physical and mental. Um, what physical and mental benefits do you see your patients gaining from participation in adaptive fitness and adaptive sports? So aside from life skills learned from being a competitive athlete or being part of a team, what actual physical and mental and emotional benefits do you see adaptive sports and fitness giving your patients and adaptive athletes in general? Sure. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, much like all other things in life, adaptive athletes are no different than athletes who would not be considered to be adaptive athletes. And in, and obviously there are some differences in terms of how things might need to be modified and we have different sets of struggles, but at the end of the day, people are people and people have the same needs, uh, physical needs, emotional needs, psychological needs. Um, I don't think LeBron James has a different brain in terms of what makes him happy than somebody who's playing adaptive basketball. I think that if they both missed a shot and lost the game, it'll affect them both. And I think that if both of them were cut from their team and didn't get the chance to play, it would affect them both. Uh, they both need to exercise their heart. They both need to, to do all these things similarly. I think that uh, the mental benefit, though, might be of greater value for somebody playing adaptive sports uh, because you can, you can see the results of a lot of your hard work very easily in sports. Uh, I could use myself as an example. Um, if I, the difference between uh, how I can run up and down a basketball court if I'm currently at 170 pounds or 180 pounds is extremely noticeable to me uh, in terms of how I'm gonna play and how I'm gonna feel. Um, whereas if I was just walking to my car in the morning and going about my day not playing sports, I wouldn't really notice that 10 pound difference. Not to make things about weight necessarily, we could make it equally about strength or other types of endurance and fitness. So I think it gives an opportunity for the adaptive athlete to really see how everything that they're doing uh, matters and is benefiting them, whether or not it can be measured in a lab. Um, and then uh, certainly community. Um, there's an aspect of community that comes from playing sports, even if it's a one, even if it's a, you know, a one man or one woman show, you know, it could be a game where you're competing for yourself against yourself. And still there's a community, you have a coach, you have other people that are in the same thing, you have people that are watching. Uh, so there's so much benefit to sports that I think people take for granted in terms of what you get out of sports. So uh, it gives a lot of, I think, the one last point that I would that I would make about it is, unfortunately, there are, there are probably many aspects of life that the adaptive athlete uh, didn't get the recognition or opportunity uh, to con to have an equal, you know, chance with, um, and uh, I'm sure that those moments, while I haven't experienced them personally, I'm sure those moments, like moments in my life that I didn't get to do certain things, have an element of pain to them and an element of longing and wishing that you could have done something. So I think that. Uh, when you do get a chance to do something really, really great, it can almost be healing uh, to other aspects of life. 
Such a great answer. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with so many of the points that you made there. But one question I do have is, how do you, when you walk into a room, how do you explain the rehab process to your patients, to their family, so on and so forth? Um, so this is a challenging one, especially because uh, usually when the, you know, when a rehab physician meets a, a, a person who has experienced something. So now um, I try to make distinction. I try to not call people patients, uh, you know, cause I try to see them as people. But if I'm now thinking about, you know, 2 PM when I meet, you know, somebody for the first time, they're, they're a patient at that moment. But um, when, when the, when you meet this, and it's not meeting a person, you, you know, coronavirus has changed things a little bit because of uh, rules in the hospital of how many people you can have in a room or, or family members. But usually, and classically, you meet a family on day one of rehab or someone and their friend. Most people, not everybody, but most people usually, you very quickly meet every, you know, or learn about a lot of the people that are key to them in, in their life. Um, and so you have to start off because everybody's different and you can't, you can't make any expectations of who's going to be in the room. You, know, you usually learn about the person beforehand, but you can't go in there expecting to see anything because people will surprise you and somebody might've gone through uh, the worst thing imaginable and you go and meet them and they're the happiest person on earth. And then somebody can go through something relatively minor uh, compared to some other things. And, you know, it's the worst day imaginable. And uh, so you have to have an open mind. But then the other thing is, you have to have empathy and acknowledge that this is day one of rehab. So I mentioned that somebody might, it might be the worst thing imaginable for somebody, even if you think it maybe is relatively minor. But when something is new and just happened to us, it is, it is the most important thing in the world. That's how you view it for yourself. You don't think that, you know, well, I, I uh, only lost one finger and, you know, somebody else lost three. So really this is fine. Like you you are equally upset about your loss as, as somebody else. Um, and so you, you, you know, like in other situations in life, you have to read the room and see, see where people are at. Something that you maybe would say to somebody on day one, you might not say to this person for another two days, depending on where they're at. But uh, that being the case, the things that I do, do generally get around to um, is, is explaining, number one, um, nobody planned for this to happen. And I think that in life, we have a tendency to sugarcoat things because it's awkward not to. So like a lot of times if, if your friend or somebody that you care about tells you, oh, I, you know, I lost $20 or whatever, and they might be really upset, your natural inclination to avoid awkwardness is to try to cheer them up. You're just like, oh, no, like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And um, so off the bat, you know, I tried to acknowledge no one, no one planned in July to have a stroke. Or like, no, you didn't, when you were thinking about what you were going to do in the summer, you didn't think that you were going to have a spinal cord injury and acknowledging that because I, I think there's not that it's a funny way of saying something, but it's just a very, I think that people don't expect it from you when you say it that way. And you're showing them that you kind of understand a little bit how shocking it is. Um, but kind of like what I said about not sugarcoating is, um, I'll choose my words depending on who's in front of me, but essentially like I might say, depending on the person, like this really sucks. Like I'm just, just completely honestly, like 
this is a this is a not a good thing that happened. Like let's let's be honest about what occurred here. And I think that um, the the person that you're caring for sees that you are understanding them and caring about them there and being real with them. And I've found that when people see that you're being real with them, they they let you in. And then if you went to school for 15 years to learn how to help them, you can then use all of that information to help them because they're going to let you help them. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you trained in the most prestigious uh, schools in the world. Um, if somebody doesn't want you to help them, you're not going to be able to. So, uh, you know, acknowledge that. But then as on a, on a more positive note, what I, what I really like to get around to, and I try to do this day one if I can, uh, is acknowledge that uh, not to expect anything. Um, everybody is going to have different outcomes, but let's not even talk about outcomes. Let's just talk about today. And tomorrow we'll talk about tomorrow. And then the next day we'll talk about the next day. And that hopefully what we expect to see is uh, growth in the right direction, but that it's not gonna necessarily be linear um, you can take a few steps forward and then plateau for a day or maybe take a step backwards, but we just want to get there ultimately and we'll keep moving in the right direction. So, and I think that's the best advice you can give to anyone in any situation in life is to always just try to be moving in the right direction. And, uh, the thing that's really amazing about the people I get to meet is you see whatever your, uh, spiritual background in life is you see miracles happen. Um, you can learn statistics on who will and won't walk again after certain types of spinal cord injuries. And the, you know, it happens all the time. The person that everybody thought wasn't going to walk again is, you know, you see them going for a jog. So, so uh, I'm hoping that uh, not to say anything about older physicians, but I think that the, the next generation of physicians is growing up with a different type of uh, culture around us. Um, uh, meditation, for instance, if I don't, uh, I don't think you would have heard a graduate from medical school 30 years ago saying like, oh yeah, I think you should try meditation. Like they would have probably scoffed at it. Whereas now everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, like that's awesome. You know? So it's, it's really a new way of thinking that I, that hopefully, you know, will be of real benefit uh, and, and show itself. Well, we've, we had a really great conversation the other day, and I think what stood out most to me was your passion for wanting to learn how those with congenital or acquired injuries and disability learn to cope, persevere, and thrive again. So what lessons have you learned thus far? How do you feel those lessons can help everybody learn to persevere and overcome obstacles to lead fulfilling lives? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, it's, I've learned, I mean, I, I, I hate to sound cliche and like, I, I'll, so I, so I won't mind butchering whatever that adage is about like learning more from your students or whatever than you knew yourself. Um, what kind of like what I just mentioned about uh, miracles. Um, one thing that I've learned is that really anything is possible. Uh, and, and I just briefly mentioned meditation before even um, in a, in 
we used to have two schools of thought, uh, I, th I think society did, isolating science and faith or spirituality, uh, not, you know, which doesn't necessarily have religion attached to it, but just some esoteric uh, power in the universe. Um, and I think that we're becoming more and more aware that there is something going on in medicine that cannot just simply be explained by uh, numbers and logic and statistics. And uh, anything is truly possible. Um, we understand that patients uh, with cancer, there have been studies that uh, if you're more optimistic, you end up having a better outcome. Not, not necessarily everybody will, but in general. Um, so if you think about that for a moment, how is it possible that my mindset is going to physically change the pathology in my body? And there is obviously some link that I hope in my, in my career or lifetime will, will be able to explain just like two plus two is four. But uh, in the meantime, we're aware of it and we're aware that anything is possible. So um, that's why that, that idea of just working hard to move in the right direction is really all you need to do because you're going to kind of unlock that, that healing potential. Um, and then the other thing is that because anything is possible, we get to choose how we respond to our situations. Um, we don't get to choose what our situations are, but we can choose how to respond to them and hopefully influence future situations. Uh, if if there, usually we we think about a glass, you know, is the glass half empty or half full? Um, and we all like to be optimists and surround ourselves with optimists who would say that the glass is half full. But in reality, the glass is neither half full or or half empty. It just is what it is. If you know, it's got 57 milliliters of water in it, if you want to be precise. Focus on what you have. We if if you even focus on the glass being half full, you're not even appreciating what you have. You're you're comparing it to what you could have had and don't have. So in a way that's not even being optimistic. It's 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 there's still an element of focusing on on what you don't what you're missing there. Just be happy with the amount of water you have in your glass. And if you approach if you approach everything that way, you will always be a happy person and um, you'll just be more likely to succeed in rehab. Now, uh, preparing for this interview, in your bio, you, you talked about your Jewish upbringing and how you traveled to your grandparents' um, concentration camp. And if anybody knows anything about survival and overcoming obstacles, it's those who were in the concentration camp. How did that, what was that like, first of all, that whole trip? And how did that, those lessons learned shape, you know, how you went forward in life and to pursue medicine and to help others overcome obstacles as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the thing about that, that's really, I guess, unique, uh, in my situation is, um, you know, everyone obviously is different and everyone's gone through different life experiences. And while, uh, no, you know, whatever anyone here, that's, that's, a, you know, a part of this group right now, um, could have possibly gone through similar things to each other, but no two situations are exactly alike. Some situations are more similar to each other. Some are less similar to each other. And, um, 
I, I have to say that I've been blessed uh, and I'm appreciative of the life that I've been given. Uh, unfortunately, my grandparents did not have the same kind of childhood and really entire life that I've been given because even though they survived, they still had to deal with what they went through the rest of their lives. But the reason I kind of mentioned how everyone is kind of different is that um, the experiences that they've gone through and the impact that that's made, you know, on my family and myself, this is one of the areas in my life that sucks. Like that's, you know, kind of like with what I said about talking to other people and that's, that's, you know, just, uh, just owning, just owning it, that that's something really lousy and that, that you still can get affected by it. Um, and the thing that's interesting, uh, for me in that is that, you know, I didn't myself obviously go through what they went through yet I still have downstream effects of it. Um, so it's this weird emotional mindset where like you, you kind of have an identity of something, but you don't at the same time. Uh, but that being the case, uh, all that to say, I have sort of an emotional connection to it. And then, but from studying and visiting and everything, I have an intellectual uh, knowledge-based connection. Um, and Ultimately, just like with people and with athletes and, and people who have, uh, you know, whatever physical impairments they may have, people who went through the concentration camps and the Holocaust, their situations were not exactly the same either, even though they all went through some largely similar terrible situations. And that being the case, um, what each person had to do to survive was probably also different. Um, you know, for one person, it might have been if, if somebody was a loner prior to the Holocaust, and this is just a pure example and extreme, but if somebody was a loner and didn't have any friends or family and only cared about themselves, you know, previously, and now they're, you know, they might have certain focus on themselves, uh, you know, the hunger, the lack of food, the, you know, not, you know, maybe got to them a certain way, whereas you can have somebody else who, for them, everything about them was family and their friends and they lost loved ones. And that's, what's difficult for them. Those two people have to have to find something different to keep themselves going as they're going through this experience. Ultimately, it obviously is one of the craziest tests that anybody would have to go through, uh, you know, to, to survive. And there was a psychiatrist named Victor Frankel who wrote a book called man's search for meaning. And he himself was in the Holocaust in the concentration camps. What's really unique there is he was a psychiatrist prior to going through the Holocaust and uh, kind of twistedly, but it is what it is. He was sort of uh, in the right place at the right time to understand human triumph and what it takes to survive. And he writes extensively in this book about what he observed there and the reason he calls it Man's Search for Meaning, and this is a book that I usually recommend to anybody to read, is uh, as opposed to Freud, who, who would say that everything in life is about the pursuit of pleasure, uh, Dr. Frankel said that we need to find meaning. And uh, to tie, he says that he could see in the morning if somebody was going to pass away that day, because he would see that they're in their eyes that they lost meaning in their existence. Uh, and... Um, to kind of connect that back to, you know, our theme here is um, we have to find meaning in our challenges, you know, on a lighter note, 
we're fortunately not going through, you know, the Holocaust, but like I said about losing one finger versus losing three fingers, the losses that we experience and uh, the injuries that we experience, certainly when they are acute and we haven't had, uh, haven't had time to deal with it and process it, what we go through to us in that moment is the, is the worst thing in the world. And um, we have to find meaning in those moments, uh, maybe not that second, but we have to eventually come to terms with things. And, and there are people, you know, not everyone survived the Holocaust equally. There are people who survived and they went on to thrive afterwards and be happy and accomplish amazing, amazing things. And they were always smiling and how those people were capable of that, I don't know. And then there were people who, who physically left the concentration camp, but mentally it's like they never left. And uh, that doesn't mean that they weren't equally, you know, heroic for going through what they went through, but everyone just kind of, we're all different. Um, but that being the case, you can go through an injury, you can go through an illness and you can physically be surviving and living, but not thriving or achieving as much as you could be achieving. So as far as, uh, from what I've seen, people who can, who have that attitude of turn, making something meaningful out of everything, um, can really overcome anything. So that kind of feeds into the next question. As most of us in this room know, rehab is really tough. You're forced to get up every day and work really hard. And like you said, there's steps forward and steps backward. So for that patient that's truly struggling, that really can't see past their injury and can't see a fulfilling future, what do you as a physician say to motivate them to continue to fight and to push on? Um, so, you know, kind of like what I mentioned uh, about when I first get to meet somebody is uh, understanding where they are in their process uh, it, to start. Because I can, if I'm in a, if I'm, if I'm in a clinic where I have somebody who maybe has been dealing with the same struggle for the last few years, that's going to be different, you know, than if something is still kind of fresh and, and, um, that all, all that to just say everyone really is on their own timeline and um, everyone is different. So uh, you might, uh, you know, you have to really get creative. Um, but kind of like what I said about, uh, you know, earlier on about how somebody can go to school, you know, I'm 32 and I've been in school for this since I'm 18. And uh, there's a lot of education and, and, and time and effort that goes into knowing what you need to know and learning what you need to learn. Um, but that being the case, you can, you can be less effective than, you know, a five-year-old who, who, if the five-year-old has better social grace in that moment than you have, that five-year-old might be able to accomplish more than you with all of your education can accomplish. So you have to be really, really calculated um, and, and precise, but also extremely flexible at the same time. And uh, I think that, you know, what we do, uh, hopefully, and, and physiatry, you know, rehab medicine is a team sport and we have all different therapists that we work with and we embrace working with the family and friends um, 
is that you, you really have to find out what works for different people. And, and if you see that for one person, uh, you're just not connecting um, and you're not getting through with something, you know, it's, it's appropriate to reach out to a family member at a conference or, or, or say like, hey, I think we need to have a conference. You know, we're not, we are not getting through. Like I know that, in, I know that medically in, in this person's case, X, Y, or Z is going to be best for them, but I currently am not able to deliver X, Y, or Z to them. What am I, what do I not know about them? And, and the reason that's really important, um, and is that, uh, people person, I mean, if it just from psych psychology, people are who they are. And so, so, uh, the way somebody was before their injury, is probably going to be how their, their personality is going to be afterwards, but just maybe a little bit intensified. So you have to understand that if, if somebody's really um, open-minded on your rehab unit or really stubborn on your rehab unit, they might've been a really open-minded or stubborn person before going through what they went through and their friends and family might know the key to unlock how to, how to deal with that person. So you need to, you need to use your team. Uh, to to find the right custom fitted approach. That's a that's a very um, that's a, that's a great analogy that you use there. I I absolutely love that. Now, you're you're becoming quite the social media rock star with all the oh. all the um, Instagram posts that you're doing and the YouTube videos um, with all the accessible medicine content that you're posting. Where where, what types of content are you posting and where can people find it? Um, so, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Um, I am, uh, I am posting, um, to start off, I should say, uh, because my field is physical medicine and rehabilitation and I can take myself down a narrow path, you know, of specializing in one focus or talking about, you know, the kinds of things we're talking about right now. Um, but kind of true in any field, whatever, you know, if you're a plumber and you make a YouTube channel about plumbing, you are probably going to have to uh, start off talking about plumbing. If you start your plumbing YouTube channel talking about like soccer, then it's going to be very difficult to build any kind of meaningful group. So, uh, that being the case, I'm sort of starting off with the key core concepts in rehabilitation. But the thing that I realized is that um, myself, to myself, they're key core concepts. And I say it as if it's the basics. But to other people, the people that need to hear these messages, they don't know anything about them. Um, and this process, I've learned that physicians, uh, they, you know, I made a spinal cord injury medicine video where I talked about some comp, some, some really, really simple issues in spinal cord injury medicine that uh, a friend of mine who's in internal medicine that's going to graduate soon never learned about. And then that same physician is going to care for a patient with spinal cord injury and have never even heard of one of these life-threatening conditions. So my goal is really to educate um, everyone really, I mean, because everybody needs to understand this stuff. So if you're a healthcare worker, you need to understand this because you have a responsibility. If you're a caregiver, you need to understand this because you have a duty to the people you care about. If you yourself are a patient, you have to understand your own situation because you have to, you know, 
take ownership for your situation and and be your own advocate. Uh, and if you're just a normal um, student, I don't mean normal in terms of not having uh, an illness or something. I just mean as far as just a, uh, you have no stake in a particular game. If you're just somebody that wants to learn about uh, a new topic, you're, you are going to know somebody in your life. If you don't now, you're going to know somebody in your life that's going to have one of these things happen to them, unfortunately. Someone will have a stroke, someone will get burned, someone will have a fall, like it's impossible, you know, if you live, it's gonna happen. So you need to know about these things, I think. Uh, as far as where I'm doing it, um, like I mentioned YouTube, uh, but Instagram, um, those two mainly for now, but uh, I'm also actually making a website uh, that's launching soon, hopefully, that will uh, link a lot of these concepts together. So that leads me right into my next question. And what intrigues me most in our conversations is your efforts to create a website that will provide free access medical education materials. It's called Foam. And no, it's not the soft bubbly stuff. Would you like to tell people what Foam is and what your goals for Foam PMR are? Yeah. And how people can get involved if they're interested. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, Foam stands for Free Open Access Medical Education. Uh, I didn't come up with that term. That is a term that's been around since 2012. It's sort of been exclusive in the emergency medicine world. Uh, at this point, friends of mine who are finishing emergency medicine residency, they, they learn exclusively through the use of foam. And uh, it's the future really of medical education and probably all education, but that will just be seen a little bit later on. What it is essentially is taking um, all different as uh, aspects that we can learn from a podcast like this, a, a journal uh, that's published online, somebody's Instagram account, somebody's YouTube channel, and using the internet, Twitter, and a system of coding things, um, we take if any group that's interested in the same topic, so let's say it's adaptive, adaptive sports, we, let's just say we wanted to start a foam, a foam uh, group for adaptive sports, so we would say, these are the adaptive source sports podcasts that are important. These are the adaptive sports news bulletins that are important. You, you compile all of these different things that are important. As a group, you decide on how you're going to use them on Twitter. So let's just say we would say it's hashtag uh, adaptive sports. And then you had a question about adaptive sports that you needed to get an answer to. You would ask your question with the hashtag adaptive sports. Everybody else that's in your group that cares equally about it is going to instantly get that question. These are people that are all over the world and in real time, they can answer. So um, basically it makes information travel much quicker. Uh, right now, um, if historically, if you, were, if, if you wanted to get the answer to a question, you would have to wait until it got published and was in a journal and it was mailed to your house. Nowadays, things are moving so quickly that information is obsolete by the time it arrives in your mailbox. So this allows people to, uh, to learn. But then the other thing that it does, and which is kind of what I'm excited about for it, is rather than leaving the medical education uh, to the elites in quotes uh, that, are, that are 
able to, to participate in that dynamic um, by opening it up to everybody. Um, you're giving anybody the opportunity to go learn something. And that doesn't mean everybody's ready to listen to the same podcast. But if you're listing all of the podcasts available, like anything in life, somebody can say, oh, that one, that, that one might be a little over my head for right now, but let me try this one. And then you find one that works for you. And uh, ultimately, as a learner, you're, you're, the benefit of you being a learner is that you are not your own physician. So you can learn information, hear information that's important, and then bring it to your healthcare provider who maybe didn't go to school in Kentucky or Minnesota or Wyoming, but you can say, I heard this really interesting thing from that doctor. I know you told me that the only options for my knee were this or that. Can you tell me more about this? And uh, it's going to keep everybody on their toes, but that's important because we want to be, you know, we all want to have healthcare that's up to date. Now, I know we're a long ways off from, from this, but if you had a crystal ball, what is the legacy you hope to leave on the medical profession when you retire? So, uh, I was taught to dream big. Um, I don't know if I was taught or maybe that's just the message I took out of everything, but um, when, one thing I was taught by a very important psychologist is that when you make any goals uh, in life for anything, you should have three tiers to your goals. And that's minimum, target, and outrageous. And the minimum is the bare minimum of what you're willing to accept as, as your outcome and your results. So uh, in my case, the bare minimum would be that people would be able to say, Jonathan Reisman uh, accepted the following responsibility with his patients by going into this medicine and accepting them as patients. And he did what he was supposed to do. He treated them well and didn't harm them. That would be the minimum. Uh, not to belittle that because it's not so easy to do, but that, you know, at the very least, that's what I would want for myself. The target is probably like anybody, nobody sets out and nobody has in mind to just like be, you know, just, get by on just what they have to do. So the target would be one to really be great at what I'm doing, uh, to, um, be great enough that people would know that, Oh, that I, uh, you need a doctor or so-and-so like go to Jonathan Reisman. He's really, really great. Um, and, but kind of how I mentioned earlier on between, uh, pain and advocacy, um, I plan to do things like this, uh, which, uh, are just purely out of passion and not for for my uh, you know nine to five so to speak. So with everything that I'm doing here, I would like to be able to take all these ideas that we've been talking about that I think every everyone in your audience knows are really important and spread it spread it to everybody else. Um, and the outrageous is all of you know to to take it a step further and rather than everybody being aware of these concepts and, and interested in these concepts to make a real serious change in how we approach healthcare. Um, and, and my hopes is like, you know, which is why I think it's important for people to keep their outrageous in their goals is that we, uh, 
maybe I'll get lucky. You need to get a little lucky in life. You have to work very hard, but you also have to get a little lucky. lucky. So maybe I'll be a little bit lucky and those outrageous goals will work out. And that's how we innovate. We would never have any innovators if people weren't actually, you know, swinging for the moon, so to speak. So hopefully I think if, if you have a noble cause and really hard work, then you have a chance at, you know, reaching your highest goals. I think you're on target for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm thoroughly enjoying our conversation and I feel like we could probably talk for another hour, but in interest of people's times, I do want to open it up to see if anybody has any particular questions for Jonathan before we close for the night. I think we froze. Beth, can you move to New England, please? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, well, here's the thing. Um, right now, uh, moving to New England is not entirely in the plans. But uh, what is exciting about um, you know what's been going on. Uh, unfortunately with coronavirus is we're seeing that there is a lot of medicine that doesn't need to be practiced in person. So, uh, you know, while I'm currently, you know, this is not a a formal uh, uh, commercial pitch. I'm currently a happy resident in my residency program. As I mentioned, obviously I will one day uh, hopefully graduate from residency and and enter the workforce uh, a little sooner than I'm kind of at that at the finish line almost, uh, but that that all being the case, uh, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else, I think that the exciting thing now is that you can find health care providers that maybe are not just in your neighborhood. And I think that like other things in life, people are still reacting. So in life, you, the first step to succeeding in anything is reacting to the situation that happened. And not everybody does that. So if you don't react appropriately, then you're just going to be, you know, stuck in the water. If you do successfully react, you can, you can overcome, you know, the situation at hand, but it doesn't necessarily leave you any better off afterwards. What I'm at least planning on doing with this, and if nobody else is, then I'm not going to have any competition, but like, you know, but, but my plan for all this is, and this is kind of how sort of all this started was seeing what was going on and the changes in healthcare, I'm thinking to myself, like, wait a minute, like, why do I have to choose where to practice? I mean, you have to get a state license for where you are, but um, we can think, think creatively, uh, you know, even, even in a forum like this, where uh, a doctor, it's, it's, if you get really um, literal, it gets kind of murky. Doctor is Latin, uh, a Greek, I believe, uh, teacher, Latin or Greek, I don't know, I, I didn't go into the to the linguistics field, but it's some language that's a little older than English for for teacher, and um, and that being the case, uh, part of what you're supposed to do as a doctor is educate people. In the United States, uh, medicine goes hand in hand with the legal system, and so you have to be very careful about. We, could, we call it when we're studying in medicine, establishing duty. So if a doctor establishes duty with a patient, then the doctor is, uh, has to you know, follow a certain set of laws and everything that, that would apply 
that there's a lot of good that comes with that, but there's also some downsides to that. I think it limits creativity and it limits a certain reach and, and a way that people can help. But that being the case, if I can, if I can put my, my brain and my mouth over the internet and educate people without establishing duty, then I can be able to help people in New England and all these other places with, you know, uh, my brain. Uh, I can use my hands to help the people, you know, that are directly in front of me. And that's a sort of a different mission that I have. So um, that being the case, uh, appreciate that, that question. Um, but I, I hope for where medicine is going is that we won't need to necessarily all be with people in front of each other because rather than using telemedicine to go to that appointment that you were supposed to go to that's two miles away from you, hopefully people will react and have a situation where they say to themselves, you know, I want to see the best person in the country. Uh, you know, I don't care where they live. I can just call them just the same. Just like, I mean, we could all be in different parts of the country right now. So I think that's probably where things are headed. And uh, anyway, uh, you know, Jonathan. Oh, go ahead, Melissa. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I said, I'm glad that that's hopefully the future of medicine to be able to collaborate and share ideas and to be able to help people, not just in our neighborhood and in our state, but globally. And I'm really excited for the future of medicine. I feel like COVID has forced us to get creative, how we communicate and how we help other people. And we, we would love to continue to work with you, whether you're in New England or not. So if you don't mind, before we close, just putting your contact information in yeah, the chat absolutely. for anybody that's interested. Very excited about the foam and oh, yeah. would love to collaborate further on that. Yeah. So, uh, so, so a couple things. So one, this, this is the website. If you go to it right now, you won't see anything, but it's there. It's just not published. Um, it will uh, hopefully within about a week or so be live. There, there will be, uh, once it does go live, there will be this uh, email address associated with it. And then additionally, in the meantime, um, on Twitter and on Instagram, I have the same uh, handle, which uh, I actually, you know, we're talking about innovating. I actually like communicating with people on Twitter and Instagram more than I like communicating with them on email. I think that kind of like uh, if anybody uses WhatsApp um, for some of their texting or whatever, there, every now and then something comes along that you just say like, this just is simpler to me and feels like an easier method of communication. Uh, so I would do, uh, you know, I'll specify uh, there with that. Um, but yeah, if anyone ever wants to talk or chat or whatever, you know, you find a cool resource that you think I should know about or vice versa, uh, please feel free to, to reach out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, the nice thing is I'm, while I'm, uh, I guess I'm making a little bit of an impact in the area where I am, um, I'm still pretty small guy. So I have the benefit of that is I can respond to people. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, and I think that's maybe a good lesson for life ultimately too, is that, 
you know, I think anybody that starts off in anything on, on YouTube or Instagram or anything like that, um, I think that our culture tells us we should become like the Kardashians uh, if we want to be <laughs> successful. But if I think about it, like if somebody sends me a message to, like tomorrow, I'm going to see it and get back to them. Um, if, if you had 5,000 messages every morning, you stop even looking at them probably. I mean, I would imagine, or maybe you just pick a lucky, you know, message. Uh, so that being the case, I'm still, uh, still reachable. Hopefully we'll always be reachable. Well, you've definitely been reachable for us and we want to thank you for your support of our social media handles and also the podcast. Really excited to have you on today. And thank you for your time, and we look forward to collaborating further. Yeah, thank you. Likewise, um, I've learned, you know, I have to say, you know, in closing, that um, uh, a lot of the things that I'm that I'm doing and that I'm that I'm uh, that I'm kind of starting to plan and execute, a lot of these passions and ideas were things that I did already have in mind, but. But your 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 efforts between your pages and your podcast and everything that you're doing in your advocacy is actually opening my mind up and helping me sort of see things in a different way. Uh, you know, I've mentioned your podcast to a lot of people uh, in the workplace just because you know. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues that. Um, we were talking about preventative medicine and we were talking about how, uh, you know, certain issues that we have. And I was talking about how a lot of the things that I've learned from people that have either been guests or hosts or just participants on your show and how we we've realized I've, I've come to realize that as a healthcare provider, um, we have a very, very limited insight into our patient's life. And we only get to find out what is uh, what a the person wants to show us while they're in that visit or can show us, but we're, that that visit is limited by time. And then simultaneously, out of necessity, um, a lot of times it comes across as rude or you know dismissive. But uh, Doctors a lot of times have to be have to prioritize what gets said and what doesn't get said. If I if I have a patient in my office and there's something that's supremely urgent to their to their ability to live, in my mind we have to talk about that. And if we only have five minutes, ten minutes, or thirty minutes, it doesn't matter how long it takes. We have to talk about that. Unfortunately, what that means is I don't get to hear about some other parts of life that are maybe in that moment, not as urgent, but the whole thing with prevention is that it will become urgent. And so, so if we don't take care of prevention and uh, then it's going to become a much bigger problem when it's no longer the realm of prevention and it is now a new acute issue. So that being the case, uh, you know, long winded thank you to, to you guys for what you do, but for, uh, you know, teaching me, um, you know, what, what uh, I'm learning uh, and expanding, learning in some ways a lot more than I can from my classes or textbooks or anything like that. So, Jonathan, I really appreciate it. It was truly humbling. I think I can speak from Melissa that means a lot. And you know what? 
thank you again for your time. Thank you for contributing to our platforms. We ask that you continue to do so, and we value any input that you have. We want to thank the audience for tuning in, asking questions. Uh, we really appreciate you, and we look forward to having another great episode next week. So please tune in. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Have a great thank night. Thank you.